So we're left with a series of questions, and depending on the news source that you utilize, you're getting very, very different answers. There are some people who tell you that the Ukrainians are just destroying the Russians. There are some people who tell you we are not getting the straight scoop out of Ukraine at all. I have seen it, there's a more more rational point of view, is that you have to soberly look at the situation. You have to recognize that the Ukrainians have fought back in a way that was not expected. That does not mean that all is well. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, it's good to be with you. Major Mike Lyons joins us right now. Military analyst, retired United States Army, West Point graduate. And let's go through just a couple things that you and I have talked about, right? You, you've been our point person on what's going on here. We discussed how the Russian military could clearly take the Ukrainian military and could take the country in 36 hours if they chose. Mm -hmm. Then you noticed and you saw the slow going from the Russian military getting bogged down in areas they shouldn't have been bogged down in. What kind of planning went into it? How were these uh, uh, lines fortified? The issues that the Russians have in a historical perspective with supply lines and with these kinds of, of chains of command. But then we have seen the repeated, repeated bombings that are going on all around the country. We have seen the fall of Kherson, which is a town, uh, a city to the south. We have seen Kharkiv, the second largest city in Ukraine, take constant constant shelling 1.4 million people there and then uh, you have other cities like mariupol which has been just bombarded by shelling and you wondered well how could they do this when we were hearing about them running out of missiles so let's now take a step back it has been a full week of this engagement and already we're hearing people talk about months to go what has happened and where are we today Okay, so Tony, let's start in the south, in, in the Black Sea, where it's very, very difficult to do the kind of beachfront operation that they did there to land Marines there. Uh, and even though while that was considered to be more or less uh, Russian-friendly, let's say, with Crimea and, and the forces that they had there, they tried to do some things there that, that frankly, that, that were difficult to do, and, and it took them a while. So it's taken them a week now. They have this town of Kherson. Uh, Mariupol is another places where, it, it, you know, kind of on the eastern side of – actually, it's not in the Black Sea. It's in the Sea of Azov. It's uh, it, very close to Russia from that regard. And their next step is to go now to take Odessa, a port city, larger city, going to be challenging. They don't have the sort of the resources there uh, on the ground to take it from within, let's say. But once they do, and that's probably going to take them another week, now they've sealed off Ukraine's any entrance and you know exit to the Black Sea. And if you're a military planner, if you're the Russian general staff, you, you put this plan together. This was on the list of things that had to get done in order to be successful. So I think that's what's happened. It's not, it probably didn't have the same, it's not the shock and awe effect because it's not something that you do shock and awe when you combine those naval forces with those land forces there. It's a much more difficult kind of military So let's operation. take a moment and make sure we know what you're talking about here. We're talking about the south of Ukraine. You have mm -hmm. the Sea of Azov, which is the smaller uh, water mass as opposed to the Black Sea, to the mm -hmm. northeast of Crimea, which has already been taken by the Russians back in 2014. That's where mm -hmm. you see the city of Maripol, uh, mm -hmm. Mariupol, uh, which is very, very close to the Russian border. 
They're trying to take that city right now. You then get into where the river empties out into the Black Sea, and that's where you'll find Kherson, K-H-E-R-S-O-N. So you're basically locking up the river that goes from Kiev south into the Black Sea. And there is talk of of an amphibious assault on Odessa, which is to the west, much closer to Moldova, and it's mm-hmm. possible that the Odessa takeover could lead to then the possible invasion on Moldova. That's your launching off point, correct? Yeah, that's possible. Um, that would be a distraction, frankly, and, and cause you know another country to get involved and, and put another variable into the equation. Um, there might be a separatist group. There's a separatist region there between Moldova and, and Ukraine that possibly they could try to annex. Let's let's say that. Um, but 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 again, the, the the kind of the bottom line is this: this is going to be that land bridge that they've always wanted. They wanted since 2014 when they took Crimea. This is now it truly connects um, Russia, mother Russia, with Crimea in a manner that they could build infrastructure in and infrastructure around, which is why they've got to focus on this part of of Ukraine in order to take it early. Okay. Talking with Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army, kind of breaking down how the Russian positions have been going in Ukraine. Now let's take us to the north. We take a look at where Belarus is. We see how they've come in through Belarus. You have that 40-mile convoy that was making its way to Kiev. At last notice, it was 15 miles out. This is to create a siege, clearly, of Kiev. Let's start there. Tell us what's going on, and then take us through some of the northern cities. Well, still trying to figure out what's in the convoy, um, because it's not very tactical. It's still on the roads. I got to think in the next 48 to 72 hours, let's say, as some of those javelins and a lot of that equipment that's pouring in now into Poland that's going to eventually find its way across the border. It's going to find its hands into mercenaries and individuals where they can now start picking some of those trucks off. And and the fact, you know, it's one of those things as a U.S. Uh, military planner, you look at that and you say there, there's nobody would could ever do that against the United States force because we would absolutely chew that up with a bunch of A-10s and spit it right out. It wouldn't it wouldn't even be a factor. And there's a moral argument about whether we maybe we should do that anyway because it's all it's going to do is cause death and destruction. But 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 the supply lines are long and they've not they've not reinforced it and they've gone now shooting these uh, the intermediate missiles that are inside Ukraine. So the strategic weapons are not being used. They're not coming from Russia. And there's still no real coordinated air force um, and air and air and ground campaign that's taking place. And the fact that the Ukraine air, plan, air force is still flying after eight days is really a small miracle in some ways. The fact that they're still up there, so um, the, it's stalled. A lot of it maybe have to do with Russians on the ground. There's all kinds of different things, but for whatever reason, uh, I saw an interesting report the other day about some of their equipment. You know, this equipment's been sitting around in motor pools since. October, November time frame, uh, closer to the border, and not areas where uh, it could be properly maintained. And it, now, when it, you know, com- one thing I learned about equipment in combat, you got to move it. You got it's got to be working. It, you know, it, it's got to be you know using all the time, or the or the seals blow and things change inside the. You know, it doesn't work, and so th- they're having problems with equipment because they likely sat on it for too long, and when it was time to come, it wasn't wasn't ready to go. So we know that that's the story in Kiev and when this this convoy, but uh, interesting point that we don't know what's in it. We head to the east, and there's mm-hmm. Kharkiv, really on that border of of Russia, second largest city in Ukraine, 1.4 million people, and the bombing has been going on for forever. What's the latest? Yeah, and, and in there, those are more 
individuals that are closer aligned with Russia. That's really unfortunate, and I think that's a message sending. It's probably a secondary objective from the um, the Russian uh, military planners and, and from the general staff, knowing full well that the head has got to be, you know, Kiev and make sure that they, they take the government out there. But Kharkiv is, is, is kind of, you know, 1-1-A. So from a, from a victory perspective for them to declare a victory, they're still going to have to, um, you know, take, take that city. Now, it's going to be the same challenge of taking Kiev. They've been trying to uh, reinforce it. They, they don't have the same um, military there, though, that they, they seem to have besides its capital, and that, and that kind of makes sense. The last thing, too, is that there's a trade-off that I think the Ukraine military is making right now as they keep a watchful eye on what's happening in the south, because any kind of forces in, in Kharkiv, um, if they dedicate them to defending that city, they have to now look and say if, if, if there's a breakout that takes place from the Crimea region, from the southern region, from Kherson now, they can fly right up that, that uh, avenue of approach along the river, along the Dnepr River. And now we've got Kiev circled from really much all sides, the north and the east and the south. So I think, I think the Ukraine military is holding a force in reserve to make sure that doesn't happen as well. So now we get into how the Russians have approached this. We heard about them being bogged down from you. We have seen the the Ukrainians engage a serious resistance. But the Russians still seem to be punching every single day. How strong right now would you argue is the Russian military? And do they have the, the, the strength, the capability, the arms to take the country? No, they don't. If you do insurgency math, they don't – given what we've seen now and what's happening in Ukraine and the kind of a population that exists there, they, they really don't have the number of troops that, that pacifies um, the country in, in this size. Let's say Kiev from to Kharkiv to Crimea in the south there. Let, or cut, cut the country in half. Cut the country in half, take the bottom away. And, and that's potentially one of the outs that could happen is where Ukraine just gets kind of chopped up. And these new Russian federations are created, but the point is, um, they don't have—they definitely don't have enough to, to do all of that. So I think there's going to—if there is an off-ramp, there's going to be a decision that's got to be made because the insurgency, once they claim victory here, is going to start as again weapons and material keep pouring in from Poland, in in Lviv, where which is a you know the the border there. There's really no trust Russian troops out the west. Maybe maybe. Putin decides he doesn't want that right now. That's fine. So maybe the map of Ukraine gets redrawn somewhere along the Dnepr River, east versus west, with with Kiev. Uh, is that what that is that what we would consider an out? We, we've talked about if if Putin has bitten off more than he can chew. Right. If Putin kn- knew this and did it anyway, what he's hoping for is that the United States or NATO gives him an out, something face saving, so you don't get to even worse options. And one of those options could very well be, I was discussing this earlier, that never mind just Dehensk and Luhansk, I think those are already gone. The whole Donbass region will become Russian-controlled. We're discussing the eastern half of Ukraine. You take the river and you take the eastern side of it from the Mm -hmm. Black Sea all the way up to Belarus, and you're like, there you go. That would be considered an acceptable by Ukraine face-saving moment to give up that land and those people and say, yeah, but at least we don't have a nuclear war. Yeah, that's a great question. I don't think so. I think he's now gone past the point of no return. When we were talking a few days ago, maybe he wasn't there. Uh, But now I I guarantee military planners are putting together 
things that say, look, he, you know, we might have to strike him first before he strikes us. He's now threatened nuclear activity more than once. So has Lazarov. So has his subordinates. And if we're not going to be cognizant of that, you know, we have to, you know, we're kind of shame on us at this point because he's, you know, especially as once he thinks these sanctions now have caused a higher military response. Um, I'm not sure he has that same uh, capacity now to get to the Baltics without the Belarusian military. When now again, if that happens, now you've got Belarus as a as an agitator as well in the same in the same token. Um, I'm not sure Ukraine would stomach that. The other side to it is Tony. I don't think that the eastern part of Ukraine could exist as a separate country. I don't think there's there's enough natural resources. It doesn't you know wouldn't define what would be a country. That the things that normally are, it would be an artificial border that would be drawn that, that frankly, it would just be a matter of time before um, it was violated again. Is the conversation about uh, an, an nuclear weapons, and you've heard Putin say it, you, you mentioned the, the, the foreign minister, uh, Lazarov, discussing it. Is that a legit concern or is that saber rattling? When it comes to that, you've got to be, it's got to be a legit concern. I mean, it's one thing to you know rattle sabers. Saber rattling is moving troops to the border, which is what he did, and we fundamentally ignored. And so did Ukraine ignore it. And I think that's a still that will go down in history as they failed to at least do some minimal defensive standards while they had been working on this for the past few years. There's things they could have done given the level of intelligence that was there. But when you when you've you've ratcheted up the rhetoric to that nuclear side. I, I just think that it, you know that you, we've now crossed the Rubicon that you, you can't go back, which is why I've said now that it's going to be very difficult for Vladimir Putin to survive this one way or the other. Um, you know, if he if he wins, he closes the whole thing off, and and he becomes a pariah, and we continue to to, to ostracize Russia throughout the world. Um, and, and if he loses, obviously he's going to lose his country because uh, in, internally they'll they'll take him out there. But it, we're now to the point where they're talking about war crimes and dragging him from the Hague. And I know when you and I first talked about it, we didn't think that was a possibility, but unfortunately it's taken a week, and that's where we are. So now I, I want to go back because he is threatening the nuclear this, and people certainly are concerned about it. And I think we have to openly and soberly discuss what that means and how you prevent that uh, from, from from happening. And sometimes that is diplomacy, and sometimes that indeed uh, is 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 force. Right? It's it's going to be one or the other. And this brings up the NATO conversation, the idea of the no fly zone. What should NATO be doing? And certainly, we finally see NATO nations are activated and other nations we're hearing sweden and finland are like hey right. nato let's talk uh yeah. it's pretty fascinating so while we still have 60 seconds what should nato be doing right now well we're doing everything we can mobilizing getting equipment to pull and getting material into the hands of the ukraine freedom fighters there's going to be a mercenary element that's going to show up there they're going to cause some damage they're going to be part of that insurgency um, but until he escalates it a little bit further or until he feels that the sanctions make it escalated, um, the, we don't want a NATO versus Russia fight because that might mobilize the, the citizens of Russia. They might say, you know what, this is not just the United States. Everyone's against us now. We've got to fight and defend. So, But again, you have Sweden, you have Finland, you have Luxembourg sending equipment, Germany sending equipment. I think at the end of the day, um, as long as we can kind of pour that equipment in and keep, you know, make, make, make Russia eat a porcupine, get, let's give them a shot at that and, and see wh- how long they can hold off for that until something happens inside of, inside, inside of Russia. 
That is Major Mike Lyons, retired United States Army. Find him on Twitter, M-A-J Mike Lyons, L-Y-O-N-S. Major Mike Lyons on Twitter. I appreciate you taking the time. We will catch up soon. More to get to. I'm Tony Katz.